Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Tyler Sharp is the CEO and Editor-in-Chief for Modern Huntsman, a print publication and lifestyle brand based in Livingston, Montana. His career as a photographer, writer, director, and creative consultant for hunting and outdoor brands led to this most recent project, which celebrates the wide range of hunting traditions on Earth and offers a new portrayal of hunters altogether. I was lucky to catch Tyler after he wrapped up Volume 7 of Modern Huntsman and before he left for East Africa for his next adventure. We discussed his early days as a photographer and filmmaker in Africa, hunting culture, the vision for Modern Huntsman, the various collaborations, and what subscribers can expect in the near future. As you can tell, I'm a big fan of their work. The print issues are works of art. They're part magazine, part coffee table book, part photo journal. They contain incredible stories and photography from around the world. And uh, even if you're not into hunting, these are a valuable addition to your bookshelf. Check out Modern Huntsman online and on social media to become a subscriber and enjoy this episode. Tyler Sharp, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. I, uh, I've i been wanting to speak with you for a while. I've been a subscriber to Modern, Hunt, Modern Huntsman now for, uh, I guess, the last two or three issues. So I've got volume five and six behind me here and um, and patiently awaiting volume seven, which I know you guys have been working hard on. Um, but before we get into that, um, could you, for the for the people who haven't been exposed maybe to Modern Huntsman, could you just tell me kind of what you guys are all about? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for supporting us. It it's really means a lot. And it's obviously uh, how we keep this thing going. And um, so I think, you know, it's kind of multiple prongs for, for what it is, but essentially, you know, we're a, a media company, an online platform and a printed biannual printed publication kind of focused on improving communication between hunting and non-hunting communities. And, and so that, that kind of arose out of my career. I spent my career in the hunting industry and was pretty fortunate to travel all over the world, documenting hunts and expeditions and adventures and fishing trips and things like that. But then when we would come home, I would notice that twofold. One, a lot of people had no idea how hunting actually plays a role in conservation. And a lot of people had these sort of misinformed ideals of what they thought hunting was or who hunters are based on sensationalized news posts or whatever they had seen. And the other side of that coin is that a lot of hunters uh, or, or particularly organizations in the hunting industry we're not very good at communicating to non-hunters. It was, it was usually a room full of members of the same club agreeing with each other. And when the conversation left that room, it ceased to be productive or it just wasn't, it didn't have a, a diplomatic welcoming tone. It was often very combative. And, you know, in, in certain cases for good reason, because there are anti-hunting organizations that are out to shut hunting down. And so I think there was sort of this defensive tone, but anyway, so, so through kind of my experience and, and just seeing where I felt there could be some improvement 
both in the communication and in the under access to information and, and education in terms of what's called the 80% of the population in the world who doesn't hunt. Mm. And so that's kind of what we're really focused on is creating a, you know, I, I don't want to say safe space, but kind of a place that anybody's welcome. Uh, you know, we obviously try to have very elevated photography, writing, design, artwork, um, you know, but we, we want to present a diverse array of perspectives in hopes of bringing about a constructive conversation. So, you know, I, I, that's kind of my main thing is, you know, if people come into our forums or our channels and just start pointing fingers and pulling out the knives and talking shit, I, you know, that's, that's really not the point. The point is, you know, people can disagree and people can have different opinions on things, but it's important that we're trying to find solutions and, and move the conversation forward and um, just, you know, be better people. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. It was um, a real breath of fresh air for me personally. And I know for a lot of people, um, I like you grew up in Texas, but most of what I had seen really wasn't that appealing to me in terms of, you know, yeah. you're scrolling through the outdoor channel and you just see a montage of, kill shots on big bucks and um there was really no talk of uh conservation or or even food it was just like you know metal a metal music bed and people shooting animals and i was like this really isn't that appealing to me so as a you know as an adult when i started becoming more interested in hunting um and i found you guys it just really resonated because you know in, in my day job i'm a designer i care about the way things look i care about sure. graphic communication and um this was something completely different different tone different stories you know uh countries i've never heard of it was just a, a really great exposure so i i've really enjoyed uh learning a lot from you guys and um i think it's inspired a lot of people to to get out in the field and definitely to kind of think twice about some of the, the things that they maybe took for granted about, sure. about hunting previously. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we also hope to do is kind of just how you were saying, right. Showcasing different countries and different styles of hunting. And in a way being able to, to display more points of access, right. That the word hunter doesn't mean that you have to sign up for, you know, the carry the elk on your back out of the mountain eight days into the backcountry kind of thing. Yeah. Right. That's, that's an incredible feat that most people will never be able to do. But there are, you know, if somebody just wants to walk through the woods with their, their grandfather's shotgun, that that's hunting. Right. And it's just, it's even, you know, even, even hunting without an, a weapon and just understanding your place in nature and, and how we are a part of the natural order and not necessarily not something separate from it. And I think that's in a lot of ways, what, you know, hunting allows us to it helps remind us of. Yeah. I was, I was thinking earlier, scanning back through a previous volume, it feels kind of like a publication about people featuring animals rather than the other way around. And that's what I really love about it. It's like, you'll tell an entire story and it's really about the traditions, the ethics, and then, you know, it will, it'll feature a hunt. But, um, I think these are like universal kind of ubiquitous values, uh, regardless of, of where you guys are, which 
man, you've been to some incredible places throughout this. Um, I mean, tell me about some of the places this, this thing has taken you. <laughs> sure. Um, well, to be, to be honest, most of the places I went were before Modern Huntsman started. So I, I went to film school at USC and gra- when I graduated, I'm going to date myself here, but this would have been 2006. And my first job out of college was in Tanzania. So I just got lucky and was in the right place at the right time and was uh, offered a job as basically a, a cameraman and photographer for an outfitter, a hunting outfitter in Tanzania. And so I, I left LA and moved back to Dallas, my, my hometown, and uh, pretty much you know sold a bunch of stuff and then bought gear you know some camera gear some some safari clothes and a tent and stuff like that (laughs) and kind of flew sight unseen into the middle of nowhere and it was an incredible life-changing experience Um, i mean we were you know four hours from any uh, city in the middle of the bush and uh no you know no radio well i guess we did have radio but this was before iphones or anything it was literally only a satellite phone and a a two-way radio into the the camp on the coast but uh that that sort of started this path of filming these hunts and through that got connected with a group that was basically a booking agent and i started to work for this family based in texas that would send you know clients all over the world and so i started to work for this booking agency and that sort of evolved into filming for a couple shows on the outdoor channel. And so throughout that, this is probably a three year period. So let's say from 2007 to 2011, you know, I know that's four years, but just, you know, on the months. And I went to 35 countries in in that time period. And I mean, all over Africa, um, Pakistan, Russia, you know, India, Nepal, all kinds and not, you know, not all of most of those were hunting based, but then sometimes I would go on my own and film B-roll or, you know, just beautiful footage and time lapses and things like that. But um, yeah, I would say, I mean, Af- Tanzania is my favorite place. Just that I've spent the most time there. I live there off and on for four years and uh, that has a, a very near and dear spot in my heart. But I would say, the coolest place I've ever been that I think about a lot and talk about a lot is Pakistan. That was such an incredible experience. And, you know, the hunting was really, really interesting. And then we stayed for another three weeks and uh, had quite a, quite a few adventures and misadventures. Um, I almost, I almost got gunned down on the side of the road because I fit the description of one of the gunmen in a terrorist attack that had happened uh, in Lahore when we were there. So, mm, geez, it what was about, interesting. What were you hunting out there in Pakistan? Ibex. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then there is uh, forget. Well, we there were wild hogs, and then there was another type of antelope that I can't remember. I wasn't actually on that hunt. I didn't film that one. But there is another sort of antelope or gazelle over there that I can't remember the name of. But but the hunts I was filming was a Sind ibex. And, and then wild boar, they did driven hunts with the drums, the beaters. And oh, uh, that was pretty, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So did, now did you grow up hunting or was this, uh, after college, was that kind of your first 
uh, foray into that world? Uh, so yes and no. I mean, I was I would not call myself a hunter when I was younger. I definitely went on hunts. I was really, really interested in, in the outdoors and I was always outside playing. I, I loved animals and reptiles. I was always catching snakes and lizards and turtles and stuff like that. But I think that I could probably count the number of hunts I went on on two hands. You know, I would definitely go on some bird hunts with my dad, sat in a few deer blinds and, if you know, maybe went duck hunting once or twice when I was really young. And all I remember is just being freezing cold yeah. and waders that were way too big for me. So I wouldn't say that I really got it or understood it or was that passionate about it until until I went to Africa and was thrown into the mix and all of that kind of came together. And to be fair, I, I had sort of the same perception. I was a little skeptical going in there about what was going on and how hunting in Africa operates and it, whether or not I was okay with some of these animals being shot. And, you know, it all comes down to understanding how it plays a role and, you know, what, what the end game is and um, how conservation actually works. And so I was sort of forced to understand and be able to articulate a very complex situation because I was coming home and I had friends in LA or New York or Chicago who would just put me on blast. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I think that that's, you know, a large part of the reason why I naturally gravitated towards something like modern huntsman, where we are doing that level of communication you know, on a, on a bigger scale. Yeah. A, a sophisticated, well-informed, sensitive, you know, um, publication about let's say an elephant or a lion hunt mm -hmm. is going to be so much more well received than the type of media that i was describing earlier where you're just sure. kind of going this seems senseless mm -hmm. uh but when you hear the science behind it and and i i have to mention um byron pace oh yeah one of your contributors your international editor i believe and um your he, he hosts uh, the podcast into the wilderness um his show has been really really informative i would encourage everyone to check that out into the wilderness with byron pace um there's just so much great information about international hunting and things that you know a lot of us probably will never experience but it really opens your eyes to a lot of the conservation ethic that's happening in places that you wouldn't really maybe expect yeah byron so he uh he bribed the right people and he's now our director of conservation oh okay no, no, I'm joking. He, he just literally Byron called me or not called me, but sent me, I don't remember if it was an email or a message online the day we launched the Kickstarter. I mean, day one, he was like, what is this? How can I be a part of it? Oh, cool. And we just, you know, we're, we're kindred spirits and, you know, obviously cut from the same cloth and, and have a lot of the same beliefs on things. And so, but we also have very different skill sets and, you know, he's, he's almost done with his masters. I can't even spell the name of this degree that he's doing, but it has to do with, you know, biodiversity and, you know, land management and all kinds of uh, interesting topics that are pertinent to, you know, this type of story that he likes to write. And so, um, yeah, he's been absolutely instrumental 
in in this process the entire time and because he does have such an international background but yet we also spend a lot of time in africa and actually this trip i'm about to go on i'm meeting him over there and this will be the first this will be the first time we've been in africa together before but it was for uh, a, a symposium panel discussion so we weren't actually in the bush and this this trip, we will actually be in the bush together working on a film and a couple of stories and, and several podcasts as well. So this, awesome. is, this is a long time coming. Yeah, I look forward to, to seeing what comes out of that. I, uh, so you mentioned the, the Kickstarter process and kind of the beginning of Modern Huntsman. Can you take me back to that period of your life where you're kind of, um, it sounds like getting conflicted, seeing some of the things that you're seeing in Africa and maybe coming home, you know, hanging out with the Dallas Safari crowd and, and going, mm-hmm. okay, um, I think I can help here. What right. uh, what was that like, the impetus for starting Modern Huntsman and the Kickstarter process? Sure. So it was really, it was really serendipitous. I kind of had this, uh, I don't know what, frustration, right? A feeling of, I feel like this could be better. I feel like there is a demographic of people out there who basically, I, I feel like I'm not the only one who wants to see these things come to fruition or improve this, or surely that uh, making an inflammatory statement in a press release is not the best way to go about improving the future of hunting. And so it really was just kind of this underlying theme of a lot of my work and a lot of the conversations I was having. And then, um, Brad Nethery, who was our former co-founder, he basically had started an Instagram account as a creative exercise. He was working on a branding project for a hunting store and was really just curating what he felt to be really beautiful, engaging imagery online. So it was almost a photo blog. And I saw it and reached out to him and said, Hey, this is really interesting. What, what are you doing with this? You know? And I thought at the time he was, I was living in Dallas at the time. I thought he was going to be based in Portland or, or Denver or Bozeman or something. And he's like, no, I'm in Dallas. I said, I live in Dallas. And so we ended up meeting for coffee and eh, probably what, four and a half years ago or something. And I just said, you know, we, we talked about, where we were both coming from there. And, you know, he had said he'd always kind of wanted to do a publication. And I said, yeah, I, I do too. And it's like, you know, I just, he, he wasn't really a hunter and he was just sort of getting into it and felt like there wasn't a place where he felt like he could be, uh, you know, not judged or be able to learn the things he wanted to learn and, and share a lifestyle that was different than, you know, the, the quote, hardcore hunting industry. And so long story short, we were just, we were aligned on almost everything. And, and I just said, Hey, well, I know we just met, but I feel like what you're describing is pretty much what I thought to be my life's work. So we should probably just team up right now. And, you know, I can be the creative director and you can be the marketing director and let's, let's blast this thing off. And so we kind of formed this alliance, but it it was over a year before because we both had, I was working freelance and then I actually took a full-time job as a commercial director. He ran a creative agency. So we had lots of other stuff going on. 
And then I started to see some stuff pop up online, a couple of ankle biters, let's call them. And <laughs> I remember going back to him and there was one other guy named Elliot Hillock who was involved. And I just said, Hey, if we don't, if we don't do this right now, somebody else is going to do it. And I was like, I'll take the reins. We need to launch a Kickstarter. And so um, serendipitously, I ended up getting let go from that full-time job, which was a blessing and a curse. It was supposed to, it was have supposed to have been a, you know, massive commercial gig for me with all this notoriety and, and, you know, consistent pay and all this kind of stuff. And it, it just didn't really turn out to be what we all thought it was going to be. And so I got let go while I was on, I was out in Montana and I just remember sitting there and thinking, Oh, well, guess it's now or never. And so I went to this bookstore in Livingston, Montana and sat there for a couple hours and just wrote the script in one sitting for that Kickstarter film. And, you know, had a friend fly out a couple like a week later or something. And, you know, we shot it and edited it and then, you know, created all the different, uh, leaned on a lot of friends and kind of put it all together and, you know, we raised one hundred and ten thousand dollars, something like that. Yeah. Uh, for that first publication, which was awesome, um, and you know, the rest is kind of history. And I think <laughs> we were sort of right in our assumptions that this was a something that was needed or something that would be welcomed, and that it was filling a gap in let's call it the artistic sensibility or philosophical, you know, diplomacy-minded. Uh, voice that I don't, we didn't really feel like was out there. So, yeah, certainly very timely, I think, in, in terms of where culture is and where social media was taking us at that time and, and still is. And kind of, you know, I think you've seen more than anyone probably the willingness for brands to jump on board and, and you know, um, at least in theory devote themselves to conservation as well. I know you guys have a lot of collaborations with some, mm -hmm. some huge brands. Um, but tell me about the, after that Kickstarter, so did you already have kind of your team in place or did you have freelancers approaching you after that? How do you fill these pages? <laughs> uh, well, there was no team. It was, it was Brad and I and, you know, Elliot, our, our third partner in the, in the beginning, he, he had a full-time gig. So he was more of the operations and, you know, he was the sensible one who would poke holes in some of our logic. Um, and then my, yeah, my ex-girlfriend was our designer and really that was it. And I had never done a publication before I had worked for a lot of magazines. So I definitely knew what I didn't want to do based mm -hmm. on some of my bad experiences with some of those. And, you know, some of the publications I'd worked for, you know, it was a pleasant experience and I was happy with the way the work turned out or the story that I'd written or photographed, but then these stories would come out and you had to get out a damn magnifying glass to find the photo credit. And to me, that didn't sit right in the sense that so many of these magazines or organizations were propping themselves up off of the hard work of all these other talented people who I felt like weren't getting due credit. And 
outside of the publication world in general, you know, in the hunting world, I felt like not just I, we, a bunch of people thought that there were a lot of deserving people who were not getting the spotlight or getting the microphone, which is another big part of what we're trying to do is showcase a wider range of, of people and, and backgrounds and skill sets and things like that. And so, you know, after, after volume one, after the Kickstarter, obviously Byron gravitated towards it. Charles Post um, gravitated towards it, but then all the contributors in volume one were pretty much all friends of mine. I knew all of them. And so I had already sort of curated those 10 people before we launched the Kickstarter. So maybe there was one spot that we had or something like that. But for the most part, these were all people I have relationships with and I knew we could lean on and, and fit the bill for, you know, the mission and all that kind of thing. And not all of them, but most of them have remained pretty close to the fold. And, and while they're not necessarily part of the team, they're definitely part of the family. And I, I think that more than anything, Modern Huntsman is a shared mindset right? Uh, an adherence to what's called a set of virtues, right? A, a, a kindred spirit. Uh, and I think that that's what has sometimes to my advantage, you know, un, unintentionally, right? Where people have gone above and beyond to help us out or spread the word or, you know, share it with friends and family or write a kick-ass story for way less money than they normally would have because they believed in the cause and and of course i do my absolute best to pay you know the best rates in the industry but i can't always do that all the time especially after you're like 2020 and yeah but i'm a but i'm a friend about that and i'm very transparent and usually we have a conversation beforehand but i've just found that or, or at least the ideal partners, the ideal contributors, the ideal collaborators and and friends are folks who understand what we're really trying to do. And that doesn't mean that they need to, you know, compromise their, you know, their rate or their work or anything like that. But it's more of just, you know, we're all, we're all moving in the same direction. We've all got the same kind of mission and, you know, it always comes back around. And, And there's been a couple of my friends who I wasn't able to pay, a full rate on one story, but then a couple brands came to the table and I hit them on the next round and I, and I got them hired to go shoot something or, you know, and I, and I try to help out, uh, all my friends and, and it's become a really cool close knit community. And I feel honored that I still get to work with a lot of them, but so many of them too have, have, you know, gone on to do their own things and they're blown up in their own ways. And some of them I can't get hold of anymore. So <laughs> good for them. Yeah. Yeah, you've built quite a network, um, and and it extends beyond just contributors or just writers and photographers. I know you guys mm-hmm. have some really cool collaborations with painters and you know coffee companies and all sorts of different things. It's kind of a yeah. uh, fun culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know we we've tried to come up with all these different slogans or and they're not slogans in the sense of a sales pitch but just when there's so many branches of this thing and when we try to explain it right there's different kind of different avenues and and fine art from the field 
is is one of those phrases we've used, right? That there's no reason. I mean, when you when you think back about you know famous sporting art and these beautiful oil paintings or pat you know watercolors or something that was done, you know, let's say in the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s, of these really idyllic, beautiful hunting scenes, you know, stuff like that. You don't see as much of that these days, or if you do, it's not getting the, the front and center spotlight, right? And so I think that that's definitely a pursuit to try to elevate the artistic sensibility in, you know, not just in the book, but also on the website and collaborating with cool illustrators and painters. And uh, in, in volume seven, we've got a really cool new, we've never done this before, but I hired a new editorial director and his name's Chris Dombrowski. And he's a pretty famous author. His book his, his kind of breakout book is called Body of Water, and he's a professor at Montana University in, in Missoula. And I was able to, you know, bring bring him into the fold before Volume Seven. So he's you know, his fingerprints are all over this next issue, and he brought in some world class writers. And then we're actually publishing an excerpt from a novella of his that he's never published before. Oh, and I hired a really cool, uh, we commissioned some original watercolor paintings from an artist named Frederick Stivers, uh, Fred Stivers, and it pairs with the novella. So, so Fred read the novella and then we sort of came up with this, this imagery from, it's a fiction, but it's a fictional novella. So, um, and Chris is just an, a, an incredible writer. So, and this is a direction we've always wanted to go of literary accolades in a sense right sure we can we can write nonfiction recount of the story documentary kind of stuff but also just the lifestyle and the feeling around hunting and, and being in the outdoors and fishing and things like that so we're wading into that territory with this next issue and, and that's pretty cool I mean it was very inspiring but also intimidating to have him reading all of our stories <laughs> and editing it so uh, I, I definitely think we stepped it up in this one. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a different kind of, um, I don't know what to call it, a different style that, that I've only seen briefly in like Peter Beard's work, which I think his mm -hmm. fingerprints are all over your style, oh, if yeah. that's a fair characterization. Yeah, Absolutely. He was a huge influence of mine, yeah. Yeah, these beautiful sort of photo journals with um, where you'll you'll write in – you know, gorgeous handwriting over an image and kind of keep a diary. And it, it is more literary. Um, so I, I'm very interested to see what that comes out like. Uh, when when can people expect Volume 7 to ship? Sure. So so we, we sent it to the printer last Friday. So I, I would say within the next two weeks is, is a, a, a safe bet hopefully sooner than that but with covid it, there it's still affected shipping lanes and and things like that and production times and there's regulations and we, we print it in los angeles and so they've they've still got some hoops they've got to jump through out there so hopefully we don't have any snags and it should be out in the next couple of weeks awesome awesome you know you mentioned um trying to elevate other people's voices. One of the coolest projects that you guys did this last year, I thought was your uh, photo competition that really, you guys had such an incredible response from that. Yeah, that was, 
that was so humbling. And, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, especially after the whole Black Lives Matters movement, you know, a lot of people were kind of getting put on blast and, and being asked to step up. And, you know, a lot of brands try to do the right thing. Some of them didn't, but some did and still got thrown under the bus. And it was a very, um, you know, tenuous time. And I think that for us, we've always strove from the beginning to make sure that we're including lots of different voices. And, you know, we did an entire women's issue. Um, you know, we've had you know, Native American contributors and multiple issues and really doing our best to, um, you know, try to increase diversity and in, in not only perspective, but in cultural backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like we were given a little bit of grace given that we were already pursuing that. And I remember a friend, um, out of concern saying, what are you guys going to say? <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I want to do something. And so we decided to launch what we called Field Outrider, right? Which was a, a call for more creative voices. And, you know, if that that's honestly a hard part as a publisher, it's like there aren't that many uh, indigenous photographers and writers in the industry that, that are aware or, you know, maybe maybe from south america or or maybe from you know inner city chicago and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there aren't those avenues or, or those opportunities don't exist and so that was a big part of what we were trying to do is say hey anybody is welcome here's the stage right Let, I, let's see the work and so we actually we partnered with um, her name's heidi volpe she's the director of photography for patagonia and she's also one of the I don't know what the right term is. She's one of the collaborators slash editors of a photo editor blog, which is a very, very respected um, sort of photography industry uh, voice. And so, you know, they work with stuff, uh, different organizations called Diversify Photo and, and some organizations like that focused on that very thing. And so we got in touch with the right people and got a pretty diverse, diverse board of judges together that were, from all sorts of industries. I mean, Nike and Red Bull and Patagonia and Mystery Ranch and First Light and National Geographic. And it was uh, it was pretty incredible to see how everybody came together under that common cause. And the idea came, uh, you know, pretty pretty quickly. And we managed to pull that thing together. And I think we ended up getting, I don't know, it was close to 3,000 entries. Wow. And, um, you know, I'm, I'll admit right now, in case anyone's listening to this, you know, the winners uh, were giving paid work. I have not been able to give assignments to everybody yet because of COVID and travel restrictions. And also just, it was a difficult year as a publisher. So everybody's kind of on, we, we've worked a few of those out. So for instance, well, I mean, they got their work in, in a volume of modern huntsman though. That's pretty huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that to to, in case anyone's listening, I, you know, I've, I've tried to talk to everybody individually, but you know, some of them, we still owe assignments and portfolio reviews and, and that's just a scheduling thing. Yeah. So, but for instance, our, the painting section or the, the art and illustration section that we had, or I'm sorry, category, the winner, uh, Morgan Irons, who's, I don't know if you remember seeing her painting. She's uh, just a, a, a modern master she is our artist feature in volume seven and she also painted an original oil painting for us that's going to be a special edition cover 
for volume seven. So she was the winner of that field outrider. And that was essentially quote, you know, her assignment as I said, Hey, you know, can you, I challenged her to do something a little bit outside of her uh, normal genre, but even that it's still a middle ground. It's, it's a departure for us as well. So we kind of met in the middle for something that's a little bit different for both of us. And yeah, you know, we're really excited to, to release that. But, um, but to, to not to ramble too much, to go back to your, your original kind of point there is that it was incredible to see the range of work that came in from, you know, all, all over lots of different backgrounds and, and stories and things like that. And I really, really hope we can continue to evolve that. And, um, you know, we're probably going to open it up to writing this time as well. Um, but I think the ultimate goal there would be, you know, to continue to, to scout talent from outside of the hunting industry, from outside of let's call it the normal talent pool and uh, to make sure that, you know, a wider range of, of voices and perspectives and cultural backgrounds are, are not only being represented, but being, you know, showcased in the right way. And I think the important thing there is that they are just, we're just handing them the mic, you know, saying, what, what do you want to say? Cause the last thing, and I, I made sure when we did the women's issue, <laughs> I said, the last thing I want to do is an issue about, the difficulties women face in the hunting industry and pretend like I know what the hell I'm talking about. So yeah, if you just mansplained the entire thing, I, I so <laughs> I stepped away and I said, you know, four of my really good, um, just women colleagues, I, I gave them the reins and, and in a similar way in the similar approach is, is how we're, um, you know, intending to do ongoing work in that, in that regard as well. Nice. Yeah, that's great. Um, so switching, switching gears a little bit here, you're from Texas. You mentioned growing up in Dallas, but, uh, now you're in, you're in Montana. Where are you in Montana? I'm in Livingston. So okay, near Bozeman. about 30 miles east of Bozeman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's life like for you out there now? Um, uh, it's, it's pretty good. You know, I think <laughs> it was an interesting experiment in, in the past year. This is the first year in 15 years that I haven't left the country or gone to Africa. And so I was forced to sit still a lot more than I normally do. And I think that was interesting as a realization and and a challenge to, uh, you know, understand how much of my identification and my personality and, and my character is based on not necessarily travel, but just new experiences and being exposed to, you know, other scenarios and and cultures and languages and foods and all kinds of stuff. And I think that, you know, I think that it it was for everybody, right? You, You had to rise above and figure out a way to get something positive out of that. And so, you know, I think that being out where I am and I'm, I live on a ranch and rent this really, really cool old, it's an 1840s cabin that they've sort of, I don't want to say modernized, right? But they added rooms onto and there's appliances and things like that. So, and it's in the middle of a of, of family friend's ranch. And so it's pretty quiet. And I, I live a pretty, uh, I don't want to say hermetic lifestyle, but kind of. Um, <laughs> I'm about 12, 14 miles outside of town. And, um, 
it's very quiet and apart from you know cattle operations there's not a whole lot of noise and um sometimes it, it's i mean cabin fever is definitely a real thing so yeah um I bet. you got i got to make sure that i get out and you know going even going into town living since not a very big town it's about seven or eight thousand people um and so i just i need to have a balance and i love i love montana but i'm also i'm a texan and you know i've, I've come back a handful of times in the past year and um I think I've learned that while I love a rural, quieter, slower paced lifestyle, I can't do it all the time. I need, you know, I need some, some variety and some stimulation and ideally some, uh, some discomfort, you know, and yeah. <laughs> being forced. I mean, it was funny because I, I mentioned this Africa trip coming up and uh, if anyone's listening uh, and is planning on doing any international travel in the next eight months minimum get your passport renewed now because it is to quote the travel agent i was talking to passports are the new toilet paper from covid <laughs> uh it is a nightmare to try to get your passport renewed unless you can get special circumstances there are situations where they will possibly get you in you have to go physically go into the state department Department of State or like federal Department of State and they have different agencies in different um, parts of the country and that you have to prove that you are leaving the country within 72 hours and they'll expedite your passport otherwise it's like a three to four month wait wow so anyways uh, that was a whole thing I've been thrown uh, you know given that opportunity in the last week four days before my flight found out that the country Mozambique I'm going to you have to have a visa I'm sorry, you have to have a passport that's valid for six months beyond your date of arrival. And mine is not. Oh. So my mine expires in, in September. And so I would not be allowed to enter the country. And so I've been going down this interesting path of uh, trying to get it renewed. And I was able to get a, a an appointment at the Dallas Passport Agency. I, I even had a backup appointment in New Orleans. So I was poss possibly going to have to fly to New Orleans to get this done before Friday. So um, anyways, I, I don't even know where I was going with this other than don't let your passport <laughs> get past a year of expiration. Uh, well, yeah, well, we were talking about your, your hermetic lifestyle. Oh, um, yeah. What, yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your, what's your hunting season like there? Uh, up in Montana, are you kind of getting out in the field year round in that area? I wish, honestly, it's kind of ironic that I run a media company about hunting and I don't actually get to do that much hunting. Yeah, um, I could see that last year was better than previous because, you know, just the nature of not having as many obligations that required travel out of state or things like that. I, I did hunt more days this season than I, than I have in the past. Um, I love traditional archery. And so I pretty much exclusively hunted with traditional bow last fall. Um, didn't have any luck with elk. Didn't even see any elk on public land, uh, which is a whole other thing of with COVID there was a massive influx of out of state hunters into Montana and there was a lot of extra pressure and that is definitely something that you know 
I noticed, and I don't want to call myself a local. I've only been there for three years, but a lot of my friends who were born and raised there, it was, it was pretty noticeable. Um, yeah. What was successful on a whitetail buck. Um, but it, you know, I really wanted to do more mountain hunting. And so I made a point to get out and get up there and definitely spent, I probably did, I probably did 10 days in, in the mountains, not consecutively, but you know, I, on weekends or, you know, maybe go one night during the week and come back the next morning and, um, did some upland hunting and, uh, did a little fishing, but not a whole lot, but I, I really wanted to try to get an elk with the traditional bow and didn't have success this year, but it was an incredible experience and just being out in the woods and hearing them and, um, stalking around and, uh, is, was, was great. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so much pressure these days on like social media to be out there hunting all season. And you're like, man, mm. most people can't, no. you know, you, you get one or two trips a year. It, it's really not tenable uh, mm -hmm. for most people to be living that kind of lifestyle, even though it looks awesome. Um, I'm really excited about my year. I just got my, uh, my mule deer tag. I got a weird, um, doe pronghorn tag like late season doe pronghorn i think i accidentally messed up the draw numbers but uh <laughs> i'll take it and uh so those are two new species for me and then um of course elk archery elk um i'm not a traditional bow hunter but um mm. yes yeah, I, I use a compound but i'm still hoping to get my first elk this year and um but yeah, I, I recently moved to the Roaring Fork Valley here in Colorado, and people, like you were saying about the locals, a lot of people are telling me that um, the animals are just behaving differently these days with so much yeah. pressure on public land. They're, you know, the elk are going above the timberline and acting mm -hmm. like mountain goats um, just to get away from people. They're climbing down a thousand feet at night to drink water. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, who knows, right? But I think that private land there's so especially in certain areas too that's a whole thing a lot of them are on private land and, and we, we would experience that in africa as well where animals knew the difference between within 10 yards of the boundary between a hunting area and a national park and they they <laughs> go across the boundary and turn around and look at you like well you're not allowed to come on here so yeah um, yeah i think that that's it's obviously one of those conundrums that of course you know, the more hunters and, and more people buying hunting licenses and equipment increases conservation dollars through Pittman Robertson. But at the same time, what's the threshold? And yes, we want people to support hunting, but if everybody decided they wanted to go out and hunt, it would be an absolute disaster and yeah. not sustainable. So yeah. I don't really, know. I don't know what the threshold is, but. I know it is, it is a little tricky, especially now with, the power of um, brands and social media getting so many people out mm -hmm. in the field. You're kind of like, great, but are we going to overshoot the mark and, right. you know, and then wind up where it's, it's impossible to get a tag in your home state mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've hunted now pretty extensively. It sounds like a lot more actually internationally. What do you think are kind of the differences between domestic and international hunting culture? And let's just take the U.S. and versus Africa. Sure, it's mm, a good question. I would say that 
we have it we have it better than anybody in terms of opportunities in terms of access in terms of variety of game in terms of affordability and diy opportunities i mean there's there are just there really isn't anything like it so we're incredibly privileged in that sense but we're also handle it the almost the worst in terms of take not just taking it for granted you know and not i just it's a constant conversation about the responsibility that we as hunters have th that the world has changed right back in 1995 yeah you could go kill a big buck and take a photo and show it to all your friends and because that's the way it was and but we live in a different world now and you should still be able to do that but now there are consequences that if you do that in a public forum it can immediately be turned into an anti-hunting campaign fodder that gets spread globally in 10 seconds. And so yeah. I think that, yeah, I don't know if I want to call it arrogance, but there's sort of a prevailing lack of responsibility in that regard. Um, and, you know, I think as Americans, we sort of have a brazen spirit in some cases and well, you know, don't tell me what to do. I should be able to do what I want to do. Well, yeah. In, in a lot of cases, I, I don't like to be told what to do either, but if we're talking about consequences, right, I, I think that, so what I'm getting at here is that a place like Africa, a place like Europe, they're slightly more, I don't want to say sophisticated about it, but slightly more diplomatic. It, it, they, they have uh, a little bit more of a sense of grace and dignity about it because it's an older, at least in terms of established organizations and hunting reserves and things like that, there's a lot more history to it. And it has a connection to culture. And I think this is something that we dug into in our traditions issues that a lot of those, you know, I got to go to Hungary and Romania and there's all these traditions that are tied to songs or rituals or a time of year or symbolism or mythology or whatever it is we don't really have that, you know? Yeah. I think and, you know, we got to this country and, uh, there were, there were people who had it figured out and we, uh, <laughs> yeah, we didn't listen. Should've, so we should have taken notes. We shouldn't have taken notes. We should have shut the hell up and watched and learn. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's the main thing to me is, um, is that connection to a tradition and a culture. And, and I think that, that's something we need. I don't, I don't know what it is and I don't have those answers, but I think that, you know, generating that, that identity and that, and that tie to a, a tradition is important. And I think that we've been able to showcase a little bit of that. And, you know, there are some beautiful traditions, not necessarily there aren't any in the U S right. There are, sure. Um, but you have to be, shown those they're not they're not prevalent one of my favorite things um that i've picked up on recently is a podcast called bear grease with um clay newcomb who's part of the meat eater network mm -hmm. and he's like a seventh generation arkansas and 
He's got this great accent and all these awesome traditions. Like he did a whole episode about acorns um, and about why you should pronounce it that way. And um, he's really <laughs> kind of shedding light on some cool southern hunting hunting traditions. That's cool. Um, so I'm really enjoying that. Um, kind of on that note, though, about I mean, you guys wade in some controversial waters intentionally uh, yeah. in your in your quest to kind of change the narrative. Are there any subjects that you try to maybe avoid because you don't feel like people are ready to hear the message yet, or or are you guys no. kind of just everything's fair game? No, we're not. We're definitely not afraid of 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 touching on anything. Honestly, there there's no. I mean, we haven't published any stories on elephant hunting, but we will. And it's not because we don't think we're capable of doing it. It's just that we want to make sure we do it the right way. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know, there are a few, I don't know, I don't know if this is going to bite me in the ass to say this, but <laughs> I feel like we are the most qualified to take on a topic like that. Well, that was what I was going to say. I mean, you've now established your credibility in this space. And I think any anything that you guys publish from this point forward, even if it is about elephants or lions or, you know, rhino or what have you. Right. I think people will will listen because you've, you know, you've showed that you are it's a nuanced, balanced sure. approach. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we've made made it clear that you know, there's some people who are just against it. And that's okay, right? Yeah. But just because you don't like something doesn't make it wrong. And so I think that as long as people are open-minded to the reality of why something like that exists as a result of or out of a need from the local community to manage their wildlife. And, you know, we're, we're our Africa issue is the next one. And we've been working with a lot of African leaders about that very concept that a lot of people over the years have gone over to Africa and told their version of what they think is going on there. And a lot of these African nations are sick of European or Western nations coming in and saying, Hey, this is what we think you guys should do with your elephants. And they're like, okay, well, how about you take 70,000 elephants and put them in your backyard? And you tell us if your opinion on how they should be managed changes, right? Yeah. And it's so like someone I think, coming to Montana and telling you to, you know, what to do with grizzly bears. Totally. So, you know, ultimately, I think that we're trying to be timely about things, and and we're actually working on, um, you know, being the hunting industry has always been so reactive and not necessarily proactive in terms of addressing ethics issues or, or controversial topics or something like Cecil the lion pops up online and they're caught flat footed and, and don't really make, you know, let's call it an articulate response, or maybe they make the situation worse or whatever it is. I think that in that regard, you know, we have to, we, at least when we approach those controversial topics, you got to understand that so many people have very strong emotions and you can't rationalize emotions with facts, right? That's not mm. going to work. 
And I feel like a lot of people try to do that and say, oh, well, hunting is conservation or, hey, these are the numbers. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's not going to affect them on an emotional level. And so I think that that's a key where we have found success is to validate or at least recognize that someone has very strong feelings about something and say, you know what, we understand that, but these people here have these problems. These are these issues they're dealing with. And, and these are, these are real human issues and try to use the empathy you're using on the, towards those elephants, towards these people who are dealing with these elephants. And yeah. I think that by not, you know, drawing the sword and squaring off and just trying to showcase, like, like I said, just a little bit more of that, that empathetic empathy and, um, and, and trying to communicate that in a way that might be understood on an emotional level versus just a, a factual one. Yeah. It kind of goes back to that, like boisterous tone, that yeah. oppositional defiance that Americans or I'll speak for Texans, um, tend to <laughs> yeah, have, for sure. you know, like the absurd trophy rooms that you can come across in parts of Texas where you're like, you're just rubbing it in people's faces at this point, you know. Well, <laughs> this is not. It's two-sided though, because right, sure, there are there are folks who who maybe are boisterous in that way, but I also I know a handful of Texan clients like that who do have those trophy rooms, um, but they are some of the most caring, open-minded, hardworking, generous people I've ever met, and those, in a sense, right, a trophy. Trophy means memento, right? And and so each one of those animals to them, and this is not necessarily the majority, right? But at least, you know, people that I know, those represent that that's just like some of the best memories of their life. And and then if you break that down in terms of actual contributions to conservation in Africa, some of these guys have spent over ten million dollars. And that goes a yeah. long way. So, you know it's it's a give and take right and and then but then there's also people who don't have that philanthropic side or don't they're not interested in the local community they do just want to go gain that status and so but i do think it's important to to point that out that uh you know that that there are people who have means and that's just what they love to do and thankfully a system is in place that allows for a significant portion of that money to go towards the betterment of, of those wild places and wildlife. Yeah. No, I, and, and I know logically, well, first of all, I, I, I appreciate that it is a nuanced mm -hmm. uh, situation and, you know, trophy hunting in itself is a tradition in, in some parts of, uh, of our country and of the world. So it's just not one that I'm particularly familiar with. Sure. And it's one that um, I think, arises a an emotional response in absolutely in so many people so um you know it, that's that's a touchy one but mm -hmm. I, I think you make some good points there um well you know I, i've taken up a lot of your time here uh, to wrap up i think um anything else you, you, that uh that you can tell us about your upcoming plans for modern huntsman and and what people should expect from you guys as a brand sure um so we're you know, we just finished volume seven and, and it, it definitely represents a new chapter. You know, we had a lot of time 
in the last year to do some introspection and you know publishing's hard and and these books that we produce are just about the highest quality most expensive book you can produce and you know and so obviously we appreciate all the all the support we can get you know we we try to keep keep this independent well it is it, it is independent but we're trying to really lean into our subscriber model uh, because the more subscribers that we have, the more support we have, even through digital, we're, we're going to basically be releasing our entire digital archive online um, for subscribers. And there's going to be you know, various points of access and things like that. But there's the bottom line is there's just way too many talented photographers, writers and artists and podcast podcasters and all those types of things for two books a year. And, and we've, hmm. we've found, we've ran into this bottleneck of it's been frustrating both for us and for people submitting work. We want to showcase more work. We wish we could do more than two books a year, but right now that's not possible. And, but at the same time, we want to publish more work, but we want to pay people for those work and that requires more subscribers. So it's kind of this whole, uh, you know, the writing's on the wall in the sense that, well, we just need to get more people involved in this, right? And and make this more reader supported and, and be able to commission more artists that are independent of the of the print. And um, yeah, and I think that that's gonna that's gonna evolve into some events and and some you know maybe writing workshops or or photography workshops or um, speaking events or you know film festivals or and any any number of things. But um, you know, we're really gonna we're really gonna lean into the in-between, right? And, and a lot more stuff we're going to release online. And, um, and especially with Chris Dombrowski, you know, some, some very heavy hitting writers that uh, I can't mention yet, but are, are uh, people's names that you will know if you're a fan of the literature, uh, the, the literature realm. And uh, so, yeah, I think that, that that's all super exciting. We, you know, we've got new branding, we've got a new direction. And I, it was funny, I had an interview with a, a writer from the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and she was kind of asking me about all this stuff. And she was like, well, how would you- Never heard of them. I was like, she goes, how would you describe what you guys are? And I said, we're like National Geographic, but we spent a couple nights in jail in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I would say, you know, this next issue is, is a, a a departure in a good way you know we focused it around water to have a lot more fishing stuff a lot more waterfowl um but as i said you know we've got a, a literary literary um kind of adventure in this one and um yeah i just i think that this is kind of the turning point i in my mind where we're gonna we're on this new journey and the publishing platform is going to change and, and there's some opportunities coming up this year that are uh, hopefully going to expand the scale of awareness for for our company and uh, yeah we we got to make sure that we have enough interesting stuff for people to read and watch and listen to so we're, we're working on getting that lined up you know sometimes i forget that like not everyone knows about the same stuff because i've curated you know sure. we all curate our our social media or our our, our media in general in certain ways and so everyone that I know knows about you guys. And, um, to me, it's just like, you guys have this huge network. It seems like you're, 
so well known in the hunting world, but I forget that uh, everyone is having a different experience. Well, there's a difference. So, uh, there's a difference between being known and having those people who know about us actually support the cause. You know. Oh, you have a lot of a lot of like followers. You think that are not subscribed? Absolutely. Yeah. That's if, surprising if, if, to me. if we had, uh, if we had, you know, even half of the people who follow social, uh, you know, subscribing to this, this would be. It would be a whole different conversation. We'd, we'd have an office in Manhattan. <laughs> you don't want that. No. <laughs> uh, well, man, I I appreciate y'all's work. I mean, it's, um, like I said, absolutely beautiful uh, layouts and design and just image-driven stories. Definitely encourage everyone to, to become a subscriber. You won't regret it. These things are so worth it. And uh, they're, you know, just pieces of art on your bookshelf. So, um yeah, I, I really appreciate appreciate your time, and I think, you know, I try to tie back things back to the the theme of the land ethic, and I think you guys are proliferating a version of of hunting that is more in line with care, mm-hmm. you know, and care I think will win out in terms of conservation more times than not. You guys care about the way things look. You care about the animals and the people that you're portraying, and your contributors. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan, man. And, um, we'll continue to support you guys. Well, thanks so much, Dylan. I really appreciate it, man, for, for the kind words and for the support and, and, and all those things. And I, I'm sure this is not the last time that we'll be able to have a conversation or, or collaborate. And so, you know, let's just keep, yeah, I hope not. keep in touch and, um, yeah. And hopefully, uh, you know, it'd be, be fun to see this thing. It'd be, I'm sure you guys are going to grow and, you know, be uh be interviewing you on a podcast before too long (laughs) well you know i i actually when you guys put out the um field outrider competition Mm -hmm. i was like racking my brain for a way that i could contribute something but i can't take a picture of my own foot and uh you know i i don't write as much as i should so it was uh some encouragement maybe to um pick up a pen and paper and maybe learn how to actually yeah photograph some landscapes because that's something that i'm really lacking in well, I love it, man. I think I think here a, 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 a tip that Eduardo Garcia taught me. You know Eduardo, or you know of Eduardo. Yeah. So obviously, difficult for him to type sometimes if he's working on a blog post or something like that. Yeah. Not only just mentally, right, of of, of writer's block, but you know physically with um, difficult for him to type with with a hook like that. And For he, the listeners, yeah, he's got a hook. Yeah, um, and so he told me about, you know, if you were going to tell me a story, right, or if I'm telling a friend a story, there's no, you know, there's no anxiety or, or hesitation. You, you tell the story, and often you tell the story the same way. But then for whatever reason, when you sit down to write it, it becomes this Herculean task. And so what he does is he actually just tells it to his phone or to a recorder in the way that you would tell the story. And then you just get that transcribed. You can upload it to transcription services. And then now you've got pretty much a written version of your story that at least got the nerves out. And then you can start to fluff it up and and spice it up a little bit. So maybe, maybe, maybe try that uh, tactic for when we, when we launch the the writing competition, get, get something out of your brain (laughs) onto paper. Yeah, maybe I will. 
Uh, well, cool. Also, I hope you don't mind if I poach one or two guests from your um, your large network Absolutely of not. contributors. Thank you. You guys, uh, you guys have some really cool people. Yeah. No. Uh, working with you, so they are all amazing, deserving people. So the more that they can uh, get to share their story, the better. Cool. Well, thanks, Tyler. Again, uh, I really appreciate it, and uh, look forward to future conversations, man. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care.